My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Open your Bibles. You're going to want your Bible today, I believe, because I'm, I'm pretty much just going to work us through the book of Galatians on Sunday mornings. And we're going to start with chapter one today. I've entitled the series, uh, Don't Look Back. I originally had titled it, Don't Go Back. But uh, I got to thinking about it, and, uh, and actually, don't look back is even better, because we shouldn't even look back. Remember when Lot's uh, wife looked back? She didn't go back, she just looked back. And uh, there was, it was problematic for her to look back. So we don't want to even look back. That's, that's Paul's. What I sat down and did is I read the book of Galatians at one sitting, saying, Lord, what's the, what is the, main, what's the main idea here? What is the thing that Paul's trying to say to the Galatian churches? And I felt like it was, let's not look back. So Galatians starts by telling us that Paul is the author. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by men, but by Jesus Messiah and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. The word apostle, I'm going to tell you things probably this morning that you already know, but uh, forgive me, this will be a good refresher for us. The word apostle simply means to be sent. And so Paul says, you know, I'm one that has been sent, and he's sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father, he says. But he's been sent, and he's writing to these churches at Galatia, and he's writing alongside, and alongside him are the men who are with him, he says. They're writing alongside of him, men like Timothy and Titus, probably maybe Epaphroditus he might have had in mind, or Luke, I don't know who was actually with him. He's had countless men with him throughout his, his ministry. He's been training them all, discipling them, helping them. He would send them out, much like Jesus did. He would teach them, and then he would send them out on their own. He's writing to the churches that are in Galatia. Let me give you a little history just to kind of set the context for this letter. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the, the apostle, uh, excuse me, Jesus tells his church, he says, wait here and you shall receive power. And the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And when he does, you'll have power and you'll go out through Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And you're going to be my witnesses. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's around 30 A.D. Well, um, the Holy Spirit comes and they begin to testify to Jesus. Literally thousands believe. Peter, the first time he preaches, I think it says 3,000 believed. Another time, it's another 5,000, I think. Or There's just lots of people coming to faith. But they're pretty much hanging around Jerusalem and in the Judea area. The church is growing there, but not, not really going anywhere until 36 AD or thereabouts, and persecution comes. And when persecution comes, believers begin to leave Judea and go elsewhere. And so we have people like Philip who goes up to Samaria, and there he shares the gospel of Jesus, and people believe, and, and a church is planted. This would be around 36 to 38 AD. So maybe six to eight years have gone by. Then, then the gospel goes to Caesarea, which is either even north or uh, I think it's north of, of Samaria. But we find there that a Gentile by the name of Cornelius comes to faith uh, in Jesus. You remember, he's a God-fearing man, loves God, and God sends Peter through a vision, and he tells Cornelius, I'm sending a guy to help you better understand who I am. And so the, the Gentiles believe, and, and Peter says to the church there back in Jerusalem in Judea, how can, how can we not accept them when God is giving them the same spirit that he gave us? How can we, how can we not accept? them. From there, the church spreads up north to Syria. We're not even in Israel anymore. And we're in Antioch, the capital. And there in Antioch, we find uh, that Paul and Barnabas go there. And, and they, this is around 47 AD. So man, what's that? Like almost 20 years have gone by. And Paul is up there in Syria and Antioch. And he's working with Barnabas and believers have come to believe there. And he's helping disciple them. And a church is formed. And you remember it has elders at the church, Simon and and Paul and Barnabas and I can't, Manan maybe, I can't remember their names, but there's some elders in this church and they're, they're ministering there in Antioch in Syria. 
And from there, one day, the Holy Spirit says to those leaders, I want you to send Paul and Barnabas out on a missionary trip. And so they leave. And they leave the church in Syria. They go across water to the island of Cyprus. They minister there, leave believers behind. Then they go up to Asia Minor, which would be Turkey today. And, and then they travel through Turkey. That area at this time is called Galatia. And uh, they'll land there in what's called Pisidian Antioch, not to be confused with Syrian Antioch, where they left. But they, they come to Pisidian Antioch. That's Acts chapter 13. They go to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derbe. And as they're going from city to city, they're, they're leaving believers behind. They're planting these little churches behind in these cities. And so when they get to the end, they retrace their steps and they go back to each of these villages or towns where they've been and they, they appoint elders. I thought about this this morning as I was practicing this message and just thinking about it. So they go back maybe, maybe weeks or months later to these cities and they appoint an elder. They appoint elders in these little towns. An elder is to be the leader. And they have no Bible. They have no New Testament they, uh, they have such little training. All they know is that Jesus, the Messiah, has died for them. And they appoint leaders. And, and they're to take what they've learned from Paul. And they're to teach people and kind of grow the church. And, and that's the fledgling churches that he leaves behind. They, they return back to their base. So they go back home to their sending church now. They return to Syrian Antioch. And when they get there, this is probably around 48 AD. When they get there, they discover that in their time away, some men from Jerusalem have come up and they've said to the church at Syria and Antioch, they've said to them, hey, listen, you guys have got it wrong. You need to keep the Jewish laws as well. If you don't keep the Jewish laws, then God's not going to save you. That Messiah's work on the cross, that what he did, it doesn't save you. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the dietary laws. You need to uh, keep, I'm assuming they did the ceremonial sacrificial stuff too, or they were saying that you should do that as, as well. Luke summarizes this controversy in Acts 15. Let me read it. This is Acts 15, 1. It says, some men came down from Judea. It's always called down because Judea and Jerusalem are high up on a mountain. So they've come down off the mountain and they've gone to Syrian Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Their big thing was circumcision. You needed to be circumcised. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And so they're going to now head south, back down to Jerusalem, and they're going to meet with James and the leaders, Peter most likely, and the apostles who are in Jerusalem. They're going to meet with them about this question. Hey, do, do we really, as, as followers of Jesus, do we need to keep the Mosaic laws, the ceremonial laws like circumcision and dietary laws, all that kind of stuff? Do we need to do that? So they leave and they head south. Evidently, and this is just my surmising, maybe those same men that had been in Syria and Antioch, they, they head north to Galatia. They head to the area where Paul has planted these churches. Now remember, there in Syrian Antioch, Paul returns from his missionary trip. He's telling everyone about all these people who have believed in Galatia. So evidently, these men or others like them, they travel to Galatia and they say the same thing to all of these churches that Paul planted, that you need to keep the, the ceremonial Jewish laws. You need to be circumcised. Maybe you need to keep the dietary laws too. What, what all they taught him, I don't know, but they're telling him you need to keep the Jewish law. You need to be, you need to affirm the first covenant and you need to be faithful to the first covenant. So it's this controversy that prompts Paul to write this letter. You tracking with me? So Paul gets wind of what's happened. Maybe it's through a message, through a letter. He, he gets wind of what's happened in these churches that he left behind. That they're actually buying into what they're being taught. That they have to be circumcised. That they have to keep the dietary laws. They have to keep the first covenant requirements. And he, he writes the letter to these fledgling churches, these new churches. Again, remember, they don't have much training. They don't have a New Testament Bible like us. Composed of Jewish and Gentile believers. He's, he's writing them, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a typical greeting, verse 3. He just wishes them grace and peace. I mean, I don't want to make more out of it. I, I think he's sort of like saying, you know, dear Jimmy, man, I hope you're doing great. 
I hope you're filled with joy and peace. That's kind of, this is just a salutation uh, to, to the letter, right? But he, but he talks about Jesus a little bit. And he says in verse 4, he says, Peace and grace from God the Father and Jesus. And, and by the way, you, your Bible will say Christ. I'm going to use the word Messiah a lot because Christ is Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. And I think a lot of times we just use it like a last name. You know, we just, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus, like Jimmy Acre, it's Jesus Christ, right? That's his last name. It's not. It's, it's, it's a designation that he is the Messiah. So I kind of like to just use the Hebrew word there just to make it stand out a little bit. Of course, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, right? So he says to them, from our Lord Jesus Messiah, and who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, this present age is going to end with death. I think Jesus gave himself in death to rescue us from the death that this present evil age uh, results in. He gave himself uh, so as to one day resurrect us back to life. This is the will of God, uh, Paul says to them. According to the will of God, Jesus came to rescue us from our sin in this present evil age. Uh, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So then there's this praise. Paul just kind of breaks out and prays. Now, you're going to find this to be typical in most of Paul's letters. That's kind of how they begin. Salutation, you know, reminding them of the grace and joy of God, or the grace and power, or the grace and peace of God. And, and then this, this praise to God. And after this greeting, he identifies the reason for the letter. So let's read it. Chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Messiah and, turn, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. And as we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. He just can't believe that in this short amount of time, listen, not many, not many months have gone by. And, and they're already, they've abandoned what Paul taught them, and they're embracing something else. They're, they're rejecting this gift of grace that he taught them in Messiah, and they're embracing something different. Now, you notice in the text that they're embracing a different gospel. You see that word gospel there? Well, that word gospel is translating the Greek word simply good news. It's, it's uh, evangelio, or uh, just kind of the Spanish pronunciation, but it's, it's uh, the evangelism, evangelism, we know that word in English, right? It's kind of a transliteration of, uh, of, the, of the Greek word evangelism, right? Kind of, we just took it out of Greek and we put it, but it literally means good news, right? So whenever you see gospel there, what he's saying is, let's go back and look at verse 6 again. I'm surprised that you're leaving the grace of, of Messiah and turning to a different good news, not that there is another good news, but there are some of you who are troubling you and they want to distort the good news uh, of Christ. And they're turning away from this good news of grace and Messiah, and they're embracing what Paul says is another good news, which really isn't good news at all. Now, notice that he doesn't tell us. Do you notice this in the text? He doesn't tell us what the good news is. Hey, this is the teaching time this morning, all right? So uh, put your learning ears on. Yeah, notice that he doesn't, he doesn't tell us what the good news, he just keeps calling it good news. Did you notice that? Now, he is going to talk about the good news in, in, in this letter. He's going to define it for us. He's going to help us understand what he's talking about here. But he just keeps using the word good news. And then he says, if a messenger from heaven, it says angel from heaven, the word is messenger. If a messenger from heaven, or if, a messenger, if we were to come back and teach to you something else, he says, man, don't believe that. They're distorting what's the good news. If I come back and teach you something else, may I be cursed. The word they're cursed is the word anathema. We, we actually transliterated that. We picked it up out of English and we put it in our, I mean, excuse me, out of Greek and we put it in our English language, anathema. It simply means to be destroyed by God. He says, hey, if somebody comes preaching to you a different good news, may God destroy him. If I come back, even if it's an angel, may God destroy him. If I come back preaching something different, may God destroy me is what Paul says. And then he begins a defense of his good news, okay? Verse 10, 
For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Messiah. Evidently, these people that came up to, to Galatia were telling them something like this. You know, the reason why Paul didn't tell you about this, that you need to keep the Old Testament laws, that you need to be circumcised, you need to watch the dietary stuff. You know the reason why Paul didn't? Because he's a people pleaser. He just didn't want to tell you the hard stuff about the good news, that you have to keep the Jewish law. And he just wanted you to buy in, so that's why he didn't tell you that. That's what, people, that's what people suggest is the reason why Paul says what he says here. He says, I'm not a people pleaser. In fact, if you're going to be a people pleaser, you cannot please Jesus. You can't please people and please Jesus, he says. And uh, so uh, if your goal is to please people, you know, you're, you're wrong. You, you can't serve Jesus. Um, Paul says, not only am I not trying just to please people. Remember, he's, he's defending the good news that he delivered. And he says, I didn't deliver this good news because I'm just a people pleaser and I kept something from you. You know, I, that's not true. And then he says this. He says, the good news that I received, I got it straight from God. So let's look at the text again, verse 11. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, he's writing to these churches in Galatia. I want you to know that the good news preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from human, a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, listen, you know the good news that I taught you? It didn't come from a person. I didn't get it from a person. Nobody told me, and now I'm telling you. He says, I, I got it because God revealed it to me through Jesus. And then he seeks to substantiate that claim. Verse 13. He says, for you have heard from my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church, and I tried to destroy it. In other words, he's reminding them of stuff I'm sure he told them before. Verse 14, I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. So Paul's reminding them of his testimony. And most of you probably know his testimony, but Paul was a high-ranking Jewish Pharisee. He'd studied under the best. He tells the Philippian church, he said, when it came to my pedigree as a Jewish leader, I was at the pinnacle. I was at the top. I was at the best. He said, now I consider all that stuff to be rubbish, he tells the Philippian church. But here he tells them, I was really zealous for the things of God. I persecuted these people who followed after Jesus because I, was, I loved God. Now listen to this. I want you to hear this. Paul really loved God. He really loved God, and he was, he was thinking he was following God, that he was doing God a service by what he was doing. Then he makes a statement about how God was, uh, from his mother's womb, God had chosen him and was pleased to reveal Jesus uh, to him. And we all know the story. He's on his way to Damascus. He's, okay, let's just back up. So Paul, uh, the first Christian martyr, the first guy to die for Jesus was a fellow by the name of Stephen. Stephen. And remember Stephen, he was testifying to the Jews about how they have, they're rejecting their Messiah. They picked up stones. Paul, he was too, I guess he was too highfalutin, if you would, to pick up stones, but he held their coats while they stoned Stephen. Remember that? And so after that, that just seemed to kick off something in Paul. And he was running here and there, arresting Christians, killing them. He's now gone to Damascus, which is in Syria, which is outside of Israel, to arrest people who are following after Jesus. But on his way there, on his way there, Jesus meets him. Remember this? He gets blinded by a light. He hears a voice. He's blinded for several days. And Jesus speaks to him. And Jesus says, man, why are you persecuting me? And that's all it takes for, for Paul to, to recognize, man, I've been wrong. Remember this, Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't privy to all the miracles of Jesus that we know of. He didn't walk around seeing all that Jesus did. He, he, he just rejected Jesus based on what 
his, his zeal for God. This could not be true. But, but he owns his mistake in this moment. He owns that he's wrong. And he says that Paul sets him apart from his mother's womb. And he set him apart to what? He set him apart to be the one who would take the good news of the Messiah to the Gentiles. Okay? That's what Paul's claimed. God set me apart from my mother's womb to be the person to take the good news to you, the, the Gentiles. Now, here's an important, important part. Paul, and this is Paul's point to the Galatians. He says, but after Jesus met me on the road to Damascus and I believed, I didn't learn of the gospel from other people. Now, he did, you remember, uh, what was his name? I can't remember the guy who came and healed him. Anybody remember there in Acts? Ananias, that's right, thank you. Ananias, Ananias goes, and I'm sure Ananias, you know, shared something with him, but Paul was a man of great learning. And meaning by that, he understood the Old Testament. Here's what happened. When he believed, it's kind of like all of a sudden, God clicks it one time, and everything comes into focus for Paul. In all his great learning, now he begins to understand about the Messiah. And right away, there in Damascus, he begins to preach. Now, I got to tell y'all, I, you know, I have a, I have a situation, I have a similar story in my life. I grew up as a, as a, as a, pastor's kid, a missionary kid. I mean, I grew up learning the Bible, knowing the Bible, but I'm not following Jesus. But I become a believer and there's a click and it just all of a sudden it clicks and everything that I knew then becomes, I mean, it just, it becomes different. I understand it. I get it. Something clicked. I had another thing happen like that 10 years ago, but that's God, God does that to us. That's what he did to Paul. And it clicked. He begins to preach. He gets, he gets, he becomes so famous in Damascus, they try to kill him. They're going, to, they're going to turn the tables on him. He escapes one night, and here's what he claims. He said, after I left Damascus, I went to Arabia for three years. And in Arabia, the, the desert of Arabia, they're right, right on the border of the desert was Saudi Arabia. And, and he, goes to the, he goes to Saudi Arabia for three years. Now, what does he do in those three years? Well, it, we're, we're, not, we're not told but we are told by him that the good news that he preached, he got it from God in those three years. And he didn't get it because he went down to Jerusalem and met with Peter and he explained the gospel to him or he explained the good news to him. No, I mean, Jesus arrested him on the road to Damascus. Ananias probably shared some stuff with him, but it was Paul taking his understanding of the Old Testament, being led by the Spirit of God. Now, all of a sudden, he gets it. He understands the great mystery of Messiah, that God's heart has always been for the Jews and the Jews. He gets it. Now, here's a question for us. And this is a question, it's a rhetorical question. I don't have an answer for it. Was it supernatural? In other words, did Paul sit at a table there in some house in, in the desert and God sent Gabriel to him and Gabriel explains the gospel to him? Or did Jesus himself return and sit down at the table with Paul and explain all the Old Testament to him, kind of like he did his disciples? I don't think so. This is just Jimmy. I don't think so. I think it was Paul's understanding of the, Holy, uh, of the Old Testament being led now by the Spirit of God it becomes clear to him. He sees it. He understands it. And, and God is teaching him. Don't, don't misunderstand by saying, I don't think Gabriel came and sat at a, at a table with him, that I'm, I'm taking away from God doing it. God taught him. That's his whole point. God taught me. I didn't learn it from Earl. Didn't learn it from Jimmy. Didn't learn it from another pastor. I learned it from God. And I think he sat down with his Old Testament and the Spirit of God taught him. Do you remember when Paul went to Thessalonica and, and right away that he starts preaching to them that Jesus is the Messiah and that he was going to die? And the Thessalonians rejected it. I mean, they, they hated him for it. They persecuted him, ran him out. But then he goes down the road about, I don't know how many miles it was. He went down the road to Berea and he preaches the same message. And this is the message he preached. It doesn't say this, but this is the message he preached. Everything that you've learned about Messiah has been wrong. The Messiah was not going to conquer Rome. The Messiah was going to die. He was going to die for your sins. He, he's going to rise again. He's going to come. Everything you've got about the Messiah is wrong. You know what the Bereans did? They said, oh, you're right. We're following after you. No, that's not what they said, right? They said, we're going to go and search the scriptures to see if what you're telling us 
is right. We're going to search. What scriptures are they talking about? Talking about the Old Testament, right? We're going to search the Old Testament and see if you're right that Messiah was going to suffer and die. And you know, you know, surely they probably went to Isaiah 53 and they read Isaiah 53 and all of a sudden, wow, this really lines up with what Paul's been teaching us. And they, I, I believe the Bereans came to faith in, in, in Jesus because they searched. This is Paul. He, he knows the Old Testament and God reveals it to him. And that's his point. Now look at verse 18. After three years in the desert of Arabia, I did go down to Jerusalem and get to know Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So for just over two weeks, Paul goes to, to uh, Jerusalem and he spends time there and he sees James and he sees Peter for 15 days. I declare in the sight of God, I'm at verse 20, I'm not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ, in Messiah. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Not only, guys, he tells the churches in Galatia, not only did I not get this from another person, I got it from God. But even after I got it from God, I really didn't spend much time with Peter or with James or any of the other apostles. I wasn't discipled by them. I got it from God. So listen, before you abandon the good news that I preached to you, know this. It came from the heart of God to you. That's what he's saying to them. And he said, after, after those 15 days, I went to Syria and Cilicia. If you're tracking with me, anybody know where he went when he went to Syria and Cilicia? He went to Syrian Antioch with Barnabas. And that's where he was ministering in Syrian Antioch. And he was discipling believers there. And he was leading the church in Syria with Barnabas. So he says, even after that, I didn't hang around in Judea and Jerusalem. People didn't get to know me. Nobody knew me personally, he says, verse 22. He said, all they knew is they kept hearing, hey, this guy who used to persecute believers, man, he's become one of us. And they glorified God because of what they heard about, about Paul. So that's chapter 1. Now, before we leave it this morning, I'd like to just go back to chapter 1. That's, that's, that's all we're doing as far as understanding the text. I hope you understood it. I hope you followed it. But I want to go back. And I, before we leave this morning, I want us to note four lessons that I think we can, we can glean from this letter to the... It's not, it's not a letter written to us. It's a letter written to them. But I think we can glean four lessons for ourselves this morning. Here's the first one. Jesus gave himself for us. Back to verse 4. He says, peace and grace from, from God and from Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and our Father. And I, I want you to remember this this morning. Here's the lesson. Jesus gave himself for you. Jesus gave himself for, for me. Okay? Now, notice he, was, he gave himself for me, and he gave himself for you because he, he's motivated by our need. Do you see our need in the text? What's our need? Our need is our sin, right? He says, who gave himself for our sins. So I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm in need. And Jesus gave himself for me. My, my sin brings my death. Death in the Bible is always juxtaposed with life, right? And the wages of my sin is death. And Jesus came so that I might have life and have it eternally. But, but the thing I want you to notice, he's motivated by Jimmy's need. And he, he gives himself for me. Isaiah 53, that text I quoted or I alluded to a minute ago, says this of Jesus. It says, but he, Jesus, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own ways, and the Lord has, the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. I tell you what, I think this is such a, you should do this. You should do this often. You should read a text like this, a text like this, like this. But Jesus was pierced because of Jimmy's, my rebellion. 
He was crushed because of my iniquities. And put your name there. Punishment for my peace was on Jesus, and I am healed by his wounds. All have gone astray like sheep. We all. Jimmy has gone astray like sheep. Jimmy has turned to his own way, and the Lord has punished Jesus for the iniquity of Jimmy. We should all read texts like that and put your name in it and personalize it. You know, one of the things I hear a lot after a funeral that I lead at is, that was the most personal funeral I've ever been to. You know why? Because I'm going to personalize. I'm going to talk about the person. I'm going to make it about them because it's they who have died, right? It's that person who has died. Personalize text for yourself and for Jesus. In other words, when it says he was pierced, put Jesus' name in there. Jesus was pierced because of our rebellion. Yes, because of your rebellion and because of mine. But you don't need to say our rebellion. You need to say Jesus was pierced on the cross because of Jimmy's rebellion. He was crushed because of Jimmy's iniquity. Put your name in there. He gave himself not just because he's motivated by my need. He gave himself to rescue me, to rescue me from my death. Jesus said, uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. came to rescue us, as, uh, give himself as a ransom for us. And I may be wrong, I may be wrong, but I think he's ransoming us from the death to come so that we get to live in the age to be. That's what I think. Number two lesson. Following Jesus is not a one and done deal, everyone. Look at verse six. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ, the grace of Jesus, the Messiah, and are turning to a different gospel, to a different good news, which he goes on to say, remember, is a distortion of the good news. It's not the good news at all. Here's what Paul is saying. I cannot believe that in such a short amount of time that you are falling away from Jesus and you're, you're seeking to follow after something else. And what this text tells me is that believing in Jesus isn't just this one and done thing and then it's done. No, I mean, I have to follow Jesus. I can turn away from him. I can fall away from him. They're fall Unless Paul is just saying something that couldn't really happen, but that's not what he's doing. He's concerned that they're considering leaving Jesus for this thing that these other men have brought to them. The whole book of Hebrews is written to, to Jewish Christians who are considering going back to Judaism, leaving Jesus, having once, having once received him. And they're going back. So listen, following Jesus isn't a one and done sort of deal. It's, a, it's a, like an everyday following Jesus. Jesus isn't asking, listen, Jesus isn't asking you to believe something about his identity. I want, to, I want you to hear me. He's not asking you to believe something about his identity. He's asking you to follow him because you've believed something about his identity. And, and the reason I know this is because he would say to his followers, why do you call me Lord? Why do you identify me as Lord and not do the things that I say? So, we, we tend to think that this is faith. This is faith. I believe in the propositional truth that that stool will hold me up. I believe it with all my heart. I mean, it'll, 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 hold, it'll hold two or three of me, I think, if we could stand on it. I believe that with all my heart. Propositionally, that stool will hold me up. But listen to me, I do not believe that is what faith is. See, this is what faith is. Faith is when I come over here and I put my weight on the stool and I, and I, and I trust the stool to hold me up. One is believing something about the stool. The other is me acting on my belief, I, this is faith. This is not faith. It's not faith to look at a stool and say, yep, that'll hold me up. No, faith is when I sit in it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make, here's what I'm trying to say. It's not faith to say, yep, Jesus died for my sins, rose again. It's not, it's not faith. 
Faith is Jesus rose from my sin, and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to sit in him. That's what faith is. And I think that's the lesson that Paul would want them to hear, would want us to hear today from the letter to the Galatians. Following Jesus is not a one-and-done propositional belief that Jesus died for our sins. It is that I am trusting him as my Savior. Number three. Know the good news and cling to the good news. Verses 7 and 8. This maybe is really similar to the last point. But there's a nuance of difference. Know the good news and cling to it. There are some of you who are, there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the good news of Messiah. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. But can I just add in, and I know I'm not, I'm, I know I'd be adding to the word of God, but I know this is what Paul means. I'm going to add a sentence, I'm going to add a phrase in here. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a good news contrary to what we have preached to you, do not believe it. Do not believe it. Instead, a curse be on that person. Don't believe this false thing that people are teaching you. Now, what is the good news? What is the good news? Look at the text. Paul never defines it for us. So let me say this. The good news is like a multi-cut diamond. I, I didn't know when he really say it. It's like a diamond that's been cut so that as you turn it, as you turn the diamond in the light, you know there's all these different views of it, and it's, and it's just so beautiful from, from this angle and that angle. It's a multi-cut diamond. It's a diamond with many facets. So here's what I mean by that, and, and bear with me, because we're gonna, this is what the whole book of Galatians is going to kind of be about. But Jesus came preaching the good news. Remember that? It says it in the, in the New Testament. Jesus came preaching the, the evangelio, the, the, I don't know how to say it in Greek, I'm saying it in Spanish. The, the evangelism, he came preaching the good news, right? It says, and then he says, this is the good news, that the kingdom of God has come. In another place, it says he came preaching the good news, and it's that the king is here. The apostle Paul says the good news is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you that in Galatians, in this letter, we're going to see Paul talking about a different facet of the good news, of the same diamond of the good news. He's going to talk about a different facet, but it's still the same good news, okay? But, but people come, and they distort the good news and we're not talking about a facet of the good news. They've distorted it until it's not the diamond of the good news anymore. Yo, I know my metaphor might be convoluted, but are you following what I'm saying? There's a diamond that's the good news, and it's got a lot of facets. And we can look at the good news from different angles, and we can see different facets of the good news. But there are people that try to distort the good news, so it's not this diamond. It's this piece of coal over here. And they want you to buy into this piece of coal. And um, so, so let me give you an example. I hope I'm not offensive. Uh, you know, but in this world today, we have prosperity, the prosperity gospel and prosperity preachers, right? And they say the prosperity gospel is a facet of the gospel, right? I don't think it is. I think it's a different gospel. I think it's something else, right? But how, how do we know that? How do you know whether it's a lump of clay that's a different diamond or it's the real diamond? How do you know? Well, here's how you know, all right? It's really, really simple. Here's how you know. You get to know Jesus, and that's how you know. And you say, well, how do I get to know Jesus, Jimmy? You get to know Jesus through the Word of God, and I'm going to say through His Spirit, too. But, but it's not His Spirit apart from the Word of God. It's the Word of God. What we know, it's amazing, isn't it, that people say they follow Jesus, but they reject what Jesus taught in the Gospels? How do we know anything about Jesus other than what has been recorded for us of his teachings in his life? That's how we get to know Jesus. So you walk with Jesus through his word and through his spirit, and you get to know him. And then when you get to know him and somebody comes preaching a different diamond, a different good news, you recognize it as not being the true diamond of the good news of Jesus. I know I've shared this illustration. I went and looked it up this week because I want to make sure it was true. Every preacher's ever used it. If you've been following Jesus for years and you've sat under the teaching of God's word, you've heard this illustration. 
Who's responsible for counterfeit money getting it off the, off the streets? It's the Secret Service. And the Secret Service, this is how they train to get the counterfeit money off the street. They go into a place and they just handle the real money. For hours and hours and hours. And they look, get to feel the, the linen of the paper. Supposedly there's raised things on bills. There's watermarks on bills that when you hold them up, etc. They get to know the real thing. So that then when the fake thing crosses their hands, they immediately feel it and they know this is counterfeit. It's not real. That's true. That's how they actually do it. I looked it up. It's not just a preacher story. It's really true. I'm telling you, but it is such a great uh, what's the word for it? It's a, not a metaphor. It's a great um, analogy. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for, analogy. It's a great analogy for, for how you and I know the good news of the gospel. We walk with Jesus, and we feel Jesus, and we talk with Jesus, and, and we live with Jesus. And then when the fake stuff comes, we're able to spot it because of his spirit working within us. Last truth and we're done. You must live to please Jesus, not people. Verse 10. I'm, you know, I didn't really find any lessons from Paul just giving us his story, but I did find these four lessons that I thought might help us. And this last one is, you must live to please Jesus, not people. Paul says, am I striving to please people? If I'm still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'm not trying to please people. Now, I got to tell you, folks, this one, this one really rang, you know, rang close to home for me. I am a people pleaser. I own it. I want to please people. And, um, you know, I used to think, I think I've shared this with you before. I used to think it was because I was spiritually mature. <laughs> I, I used to pat myself on the back and say, you know, I really love people. I prefer people because I'm so mature. And then I discovered, I think it might be genetic because my mother's a people pleaser. And, uh, you know, I just think I might have just got it because it's in my genes to be a people pleaser, right? And not so much my spiritual maturity. That being said, I, I think people pleasing is like a two-edged sword, and the good edge of people pleasing is that that is how God desires us to be. We're to prefer one another is more important than ourselves. We're to look out not only for our own interests, but for the interest of others. So you know what? God wants you to be an others-focused Christian. He wants you to be an others-focused follower of his. So that's the people, that's the, that's the one side of the sword that cuts this way, and it's good, and I think you should strive for that. And, I, and I'm glad that if my mama gave it to me, or if it's because I've been following Jesus these 40 years, I don't know where it came from, but I'm glad that I have a desire and want to please and want to help people out whenever I can. I'm glad for that. But the, the, the double-edged sword, or the other side that cuts the other way, or can cut the other way, is that if you're not careful, you live too much to please people, so that you're no longer pleasing Jesus. In other words, you can just want to, people to like you, want to please them, so that, I guess your motivation can be not that you want to love them in Jesus' name, but you want to be loved by them, and so you, you compromise. Now, I think too many of us, I think too many of us use this truth right here to justify our vilification of others. The fact that we want to marginalize others, we want to attack them on social media. And I'll tell you, that's so contrary to how Jesus lived. So contrary to how he lived. And, and, and you know, if I could, let me just say to us, man, as much as possible, can our family not be known as, as people who vilify others on social media? I know some of you don't have social media, but some of you do. And it's really easy to become, you know, somebody disagrees with us. Somebody has a wrong thought. They have a wrong worldview. They're looking at the world wrongly. It, just, it doesn't justify us demeaning their lives, marginalizing them, saying that they have no value or whatever. And we say it in our tone, and in our words. I'm telling you, if anything... On social media, we should be loving people. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I'm trying to say that pleasing God, I mean, yeah, we can't please people and God sometimes. But even when we're trying to, we, even when we're going to love God more than people, love Jesus more than people, and we're going to speak truth that's hard into the lives of others, we don't have to do it where we're tearing the person down. We can do it by loving them 
with strong and loving words. When we desire to please others above speaking the truth in love, then, then I think we're guilty of the thing here that Paul says you can't do. You can't, you can't be a servant of Jesus and, um, and strive to please people at every front because truth, truth matters. Truth is paramount. We need to speak the truth. But remember, the scripture tells us speak the truth in love. So we need to speak the truth, no matter what it costs us with a person, but let's be really, really careful to speak the truth in such a way that we're not marginalizing and, and vilifying people. Now, I'm, I'm done. I got one story that I want to end with. I've, I've built the story up to several of you, but the story is just wonderful. It's a story by Becky Pippard. Um, some of you that are old timers may remember, Becky wrote a book years and years and years ago called Out of the Salt Shaker. And it was about how we get out of this building and we become salt and light to the world around us. And I read the story and I didn't realize that it was a Becky story until after I'd read it. But when I learned it was Becky, I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely Becky. But I'm going to read you this story because I want you to see what it looks like when we love Jesus more than people. We please Jesus more than people, but at the same time we love people. Okay, you follow me? Here's the story. While living in the UK, I often went to a London hair salon, and my hairdresser's name was Theo. As trust grew between us, Theo told me he was gay. He shared his life with me. I shared my life and faith with him. And while he respected my faith, he wasn't sure if God existed. One day I arrived at the salon, and when I greeted Theo, I realized he was very low. As I sat in the chair, I put my hand on his arm. I said, Theo, are you going to tell me what's wrong? And he looked at me and he said, Becky, you're the only customer all day who's even noticed that I'm depressed. Wow. That hit you like it hits me? We're so preoccupied in our own worlds, we, we, don't, we don't see, or maybe we're not willing to speak up. I don't know. He continued, I've had a partner for several years. To be honest, I cherished and worshipped him. But last week, he moved out, and I'm absolutely devastated. Since you're a Christian, are you going to tell me our relationship was doomed because I'm a homosexual? Now, as I'm reading this myself for the first time, I'm thinking, man, what would I say to Theo? And I really didn't know. But listen to what Becky says. I took a deep breath. Oh, Theo. I'm so grieved to see you in this much pain. Isn't that a great response? I'm so grieved to see you in this much pain. Actually, I think the issue you're struggling with is deeper than sexual identity. In fact, I have a straight friend, Anna, who just told me the exact same thing. She met the love of her life and was certain that love would heal them both. But he recently left her for another woman, and she's now clinically depressed. Yet what I find interesting is that you both told me that you worshipped your partners, which is very insightful. Why is that insightful, he asked. I told him, because we have been created to love and to worship God. We have, we have worshipping natures. Where we run into trouble is when we try to worship something other than God. When we put something else in God's place, it will always fail us because they aren't big enough to ultimately build our lives upon. Theo said, well, that's exactly what my partner told me. He said, I was trying to make him my everything. He even said, I'm not a God. I can't possibly meet your every need. And frankly, it's exhausting. I said, this is Becky, that, that is why God's substitutes are seen as sin in the Bible, because we are demanding that they give us what only God can give us, identity, purpose, security, being totally understood and perfectly loved. The Bible even has a word for God's substitutes, idolatry. Theo looked at me in astonishment and said, so you're telling me that according to the Bible, my suffering is actually due to the fact that I've been worshiping the wrong thing? Exactly. And Theo, you're not alone. All of us, myself included, have used God's substitutes. All of us have turned from God and tried to run our own lives as if we we're in charge. It's the primary reason for all the brokenness around us and in us. I continued, we've been created for a relationship with God, to live with him at the center of our lives. And that is why the Christian message is called good news, because God loves us and has been seeking us for far longer than we realize. 
But we also need to own the bad news that we have chosen something else in his place. What scares me is that what you're saying makes so much sense, Theo answered, that to find the love I've been searching for all my life, I have to get my relationship with God sorted out first. But I, I couldn't come to God, Becky, not after all the things I've done. Theo, I replied, the only reason any of us can come to God is because he loves us. Jesus came from heaven and died on the cross for our sins because everyone needs God's forgiveness. There isn't anything we can do to deserve such a gift except to thank Jesus for all that he has done for us. Tell him we are sorry for our sins. Invite him to come into our lives as Lord. Now, I got one more paragraph, but I'm going to stop here. And I'm just gonna, these are Jimmy's comments. So I've got a couple of comments about this. Number one, I'm, as I'm reading, I'm thinking, man, everybody's out there thinking, I could never do that. <laughs> I could never speak like Becky spoke in this situation. Hey, guys, I don't think I could either. I, don't, I couldn't either. We don't have to, though. We just have to have the heart that Becky's having here to not. So she could, she could say, well, I don't want to offend Theo. I don't want to not speak hard truth to Theo. That's not what she said. She's speaking hard truth to Theo. But you notice that she's speaking hard truth to Theo in such a way, man, that the love of Jesus is just, just rolling all over Theo. You notice that? You don't have to speak like Becky. You don't have to be able to do this. But you've got to be willing to speak up. And, and here's a promise, I think that Jesus has made to us that, I mean, I know he made it to his early disciples. I think he makes it to us too. And that is that if you speak up, he'll help you. His spirit will help you. You just start. His spirit will help you. Here's the last paragraph. To my surprise, Theo replied, now listen, Becky, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for speaking plainly without making me feel judged. Thank you for saying you've also tried God's substitutes. Thank you for telling me that God loves me and wants a relationship with me when I'm feeling so worthless. You've, always, you've already given me some books and a Bible. I think it's time I start reading them. Let's live to please God, not people. But let's make sure we're loving people, even as we're seeking to please God. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.